Are you looking for organizations that support essential workers? Our friends at Descent Pins have made it easy. Just visit descentpins.com essential. That's D-I-S-S-E-N-T-P-I-N-S dot com slash essential. Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the web editor. We seem to be entering a new phase of the pandemic, one that governments hadn't planned for. In the United States, businesses that had reopened the week before are shutting down again following massive spikes in infection rates. This is, sadly, par for the course. Contradictory messages about public health are commonplace. Remember when we were told that we shouldn't wear masks? And the federal government's repeated failure to properly prepare for and respond to this crisis is outrageous. In the cover story for the July issue, Barrett Swanson reports from Disaster City, a place where search and rescue teams run through nightmare scenarios like floods, chemical plant explosions, and yes, even pandemics. I spoke with Swanson about the benefits and limitations of these simulations, as well as the American attitude toward, quote, natural disasters. So I guess we could start off with Disaster City itself. So can you describe it and how you got there? Sure. Disaster City is a 52-acre training compound for search and rescue teams all across the country. All 28 of FEMA's urban search and rescue teams have had um, their members, or some of their members at least, go and train at Disaster City. So it's essentially this mock community where they do live simulations of building collapses, train derailments, nuclear spills, global pandemics, terrorist attacks, mass shootings, every, I mean, just a, just an utter catalog of woe. Um, <laughs> and they hire victim volunteers or, or they, they solicit this victim volunteers to don moulage. So like gory prosthetic makeup and, you know, they, they put, rebar sticking out of people and then they they sort of use these volunteers to practice some of the rescue strategies that they would normally confront in any of those various situations um so i i came to disaster city somewhat circuitously insofar as because i have certain neurological problems namely i've i've grew up experiencing obsessive compulsive disorder and my particular permutation of obsessive compulsive disorder was a sort of morbid and preoccupying fear of, of natural disasters, particularly tornadoes owing owing to an encounter with the movie Twister. Um, and so m- much of my compulsions and obsessions as a child revolved around the very scenarios that seem to be confronting us with ever more increasing regularity, the things that we're experiencing with climate change and, you know, terrorist attacks, those sorts of things. And so I, I, you know, I tend to keep an eye on what's happening in terms of disaster preparedness at, at a, you know, a federal level and had heard about Disaster City and knew that they did these sort of trainings and, and was curious about what it might be like to 
I mean, if I'm being totally honest, there's part of me that thought that Disaster City would be a, you know, a useful exposure therapy for me. Mm, <laughs> um, yeah. But uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how I came to it. Right. So you went into it knowing that part of writing this story would also mean writing about your experiences of OCD. And yes. is this the first time you've kind of dealt with that condition in your writing? I think I've I've uh, strategically alluded to it before. And strategically, I mean that I, I didn't sort of do the full disclosure thing. But mm. this, this felt this felt like it was kind of unavoidable. Yeah. And you describe your family as responding to your early phobia of tornadoes with what the OCD literature calls family accommodation, except for your brother. He really pushes against it. Um, So you don't draw attention to it, but the structure of the essay seems to imply a link between the family accommodation response and the disaster simulations like Disaster City. And in Mm. light of that link, it seems appropriate to ask what the better family response to OCD might look like and whether or not that picture might map onto a better way of how we all think about disasters. Yeah, that's a that's an incredibly um, exquisite reading of my piece. And I didn't I didn't I don't know that, that, that I made the connection of that. But yeah, that's totally true. I think so a fam- family accommodation for OCD involves uh, the family members sort of being conscripted into the person's rituals and pacifying them and not confronting them and trying to acknowledge maybe aspects of their irrationality. So f- for me, that that involved being, you know, a, a 11, 12-year-old kid seeing dark storm clouds and then enjoining my family members to accompany me into the basement uh, where I had, you know, a stash of snacks and a transistor radio and all these things. And, and my parents very dutifully you know, tried to palliate my fears or whatever. And, and my brother was, on a, you know, unsurprisingly um, averse to doing this. Mm. And, and oh, <laughs> It sounds and quite... cute, though. It's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just hang was, on the it... snacks in the basement. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> right. He wasn't, he wasn't having it. He wanted to, I don't know, go play his guitar, you know, and, and brood darkly about whatever was troubling. <laughs> um <laughs> So, so yeah. And then, you know, I mean, quite, quite obviously the more healthy response and, you know, my parents, my parents were doing the best they could, but the the better response may have been, you know, ferrying me over to the, the nearest mental health care provider and trying to make heads or tails of, of what was spawning these anxieties in the first place and trying to mitigate them that way, you know, true, true reform of, or reformation of thought. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so the the parallel there, I think, is like the extent to which we as a nation accommodate disasters rather than confronting them and, and what that might mean. So the extent to which we accommodate them seems to be privileging disaster preparedness or disaster response rather than looking at the various mechanisms and, and, and structures that that tend to foment or foster the conditions of, of disaster in the first place. Yeah, hopefully that's lucid. But yeah, that's that's a, a really amazing read of my. I didn't I didn't think about that. Now I'm I'm very excited that that <laughs> that's accident <laughs> accidental art therapy. It's always mm-hmm. good. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so 
we've established why you were interested in this place. And you talk about some of the other volunteers and people who work there. And I was particularly drawn to John Yonke, who is this guy who just he just loves doing this and in in again this is you know you're being buried you're being you know if you have any sort of claustrophobia you cannot participate this in any way getting covered with fake dust with like rebar as you said like gore makeup all this stuff and he just acts like uh he's having the best time so who so i mean could you talk more about him and kind of the other volunteers who were there you know save for those who were just clearly trying to get some college credit <laughs> sure sure um yeah it's actually quite tragic because john john struck me as an incredibly interesting figure and i actually wrote what i felt to be was uh like a glittering tribute to him that was like mm -hmm. two thousand words too long but he <laughs> he, he was he's a, a construction worker based based in um the college station area college station texas where disaster city is located and he, in his spare time, would make these pieces of moulage. He would he would find scraps of uh, on on his construction sites of rebar and metal and, and wood chips and stuff. And he would go home and develop these like prosthetic impalements. And and they would they would actually use them at Disaster City to like affix them to people to make their wounds more realistic or whatever. So he struck me as terribly interesting and. He's a sculptor. Um, I mean, that's incredible. He's a, yeah, yeah. You know, maybe there's an, another piece there where I just go hang out with John, who who was <laughs> an incredibly genial and and um, interesting person. But yeah, uh, and he was he was not alone in the in the what struck me as a kind of thanatonic enthusiasm <laughs> for some of these some of these simulations. He had, he had been doing it for ten years, and there were a lot of repeat victims there, victim volunteers, which was the, the nomenclature they used to describe us. And and in, ma in many cases, they were people who were either in law enforcement or in EMT or hospital settings who wanted to get a sense of how first responders were dealing with things on the front end that they might end up encountering once they arrived in hospital settings. So there was a lot of nurses or nurses in training. There were a lot of EMTs, people who, who actually wanted to be, become part of these tasks, these FEMA-based task force in the future. And then, then there were just members of the community who, who you could kind of sense were there out of sort of touristic curiosity, right? They were just, mm -hmm. they, they, had no, they had no qualms about being buried six feet underground in, in containers that were the size of sleeping bags, you know, really snug. And and helping out with what they call the national cause, or, or just kind of seeing, seeing how the first responders and these task force manage these sort of disaster scenarios. And so I kept asking folks, you know, do you have do you have anxieties about these things? Because clearly I was trying to find compatriots of of fear, and no one, everyone else displayed just sort of enviable levels of insouciance in in doing all of these simulations, whereas I was, you know pretty frequently repairing to the restroom just to do self-exhortations in the mirror and sort of do my breathing exercises and work mm -hmm. up the courage to go back out there. So yeah, I was kind of kind of alone in, in not enjoying what was happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I mean, you, I mean, the French critical theorist that 
really nobody has read, but the one that everyone should have read instead of Foucault is uh, Baudrillard. And you cite yeah. Baudrillard a lot in this essay because um, the parallel, you know, his writing about what Disneyland is. Mm-hmm. It's a simulacra of this thing that has never existed, this idealized time, but you can move through it as it's a real thing, but it's not a real right. thing. So in your piece, you're arguing that a simulated disaster can produce reality even before it happens, thereby inuring us to the calamities and preempting any meaningful response we might have to them. So what about the effects of actual disasters? Living in the time of COVID-19, the failing sometimes arises that nothing else quite so disastrous could happen right now. And that's absolutely not true. So do you think the real calamities also have an enduring effect or can they sometimes lead somewhere else? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I think incidentally, you know, I, I was kind of meditating on some of the, the research I had done in preparation for this piece. And I was thinking about the year that, that FEMA was created was roughly the I think the same time frame that CNN was created. And, mm. and we begin to think about the ways in which America's disaster culture really sort of hinges upon and, and depends upon the 24-hour news cycle. Yeah. And I was thinking about that in relation to OCD. One of the features of obsessive compulsive disorder is this thing called intrusive thought syndrome, which is the person is sort of relentlessly bombarded with hair-raising visions, mm-hmm. um, upsetting things, and they become inextricably snagged on them. They just keep replaying these things over and over and over again, which seems like a kind of cruel mirror held up to the 24-hour news cycle. And so I think that that process by which we are inundated with these visions of horror and woe uh, on CNN and, and MSNBC and Fox News, etc., you're precisely right. It begins to inure us to disasters as such, and we can no longer make heads or tails of, of what is a real disaster versus what is sensationalized for the news. And I remember, too, feeling that in the early stirrings of COVID, looking at the news, I mean, this is, you know, late February, early March, and thinking like, is this, is this real? Is this, mm-hmm. is this, is this really going to hit the way that, that I'm fearful it will? And of course it did. And, and it, even more so, but the, but what, right. What Bolgiard is saying there, I think is that the simulation ends up creating a space where we imagine ourselves into that place, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily ask us to reimagine how social structures work to to sort of prevent those things from happening. And so the the case that I talk about in the piece is one involving a simulation done called Hurricane Pam, which was a category three storm that was meant to hit New Orleans in 2004. And it was a simulation done by a FEMA contractor to see how emergency response plans would work. And basically, they discovered that without concerted revision, these municipalities and state and federal teams would be so, there's so much cross-jurisdictional confusion that the the response would be just addled and, and, and very slow. And so in some sense, we, we look at Hurricane Pam and we say, oh, see, we were, we were prepared. We knew, we knew the, 
the mechanisms by which we would fail, et cetera. But what it, what it turned out to be was, was nothing changed. But the, the types of changes that would have been required would have involved a massive both moral and political undertaking that I think we're, we're just generally reluctant to execute for, you know, manifold reasons. Well, and I'm sure that the run through didn't include anything about the structural problems of the city of New Orleans, you know, the the problems with the levees, the problems with, let's say, if people, a majority of people were flooded out of their homes, where would they go? Mm -hmm. Like, those are... Those right. are things that can't be contained in Disaster City. And I actually I wanted to I wanted to go back and talk about CNN a bit because CNN and the first Iraq war, um, it was considered sort of like the first kind of simulated war because yeah. it was it, it was so mediated and because of Dick Cheney had designed these, you know, areas where, you know, again, all in the name of protecting U.S. defense, U.S. interests, the media was placed in these strategic zones, which would, you know, when we went back to Iraq, those were the green zone. And so it was it was creating this image of a war, this image of America winning this war of coming in and saving the Kurds and then none of the aftermath. And do you right. think that there could be a place where, you know, a second disaster city, disaster city too, I don't know, where there was more of a, where things were less theoretical and more trying to fix these structural problems that inevitably arise with wars, with floods, with tornadoes, with all this stuff that is happening more and more now. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like, what such a disaster city would look like. And, and, and I think what it would end up looking like is just a city as such. Like, how do you go about beginning to plan residential and commercial development in, in areas that are prone to disaster? You know, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm flashing on a, a, a factoid from the research where in the early 1800s in New England, there was the most... I think it was like 1810, there was a hurricane that hit New England. And it was the most powerful hurricane that had hit the, the region since the early 1600s. And very few people died, right? But as, as we sort of got closer to in, in the Industrial Revolution and, and urban areas be, be, became more and more developed, right? The, the seismic uh, levels of destruction could be attributed to, to human error, not natural error disasters as such, but human error and how we were conceptualizing development, et cetera. So I think a disaster city that countenances how to truly prevent these things would involve, I think, more conversations about commercial interests, commercial development interests, climate change, not building in, in floodplains or, mm -hmm. you know, along the San Andreas fault line, those sorts of things like conver conversations around those sorts of questions. Yeah. I mean, it seems so simple that you would not do things like build a house on a floodplain or build a housing development on what used to be farmland, which is meant to be flooded. And yet it happens every day in America mm -hmm. for a variety of mm -hmm. reasons, or even um, Hurricane Harvey in Houston, where the mm -hmm. people who were living in the subdivision that was the hardest hit had no idea they were on a floodplain and they had been sold a bad bill of goods and then they were 
right. fleeced. They had to sell their damaged houses for not that much money. And it was it was just sort of built into the system of the American system, right? Of this is right. what happens when you participate in the market and anything that happens to you, well, that's your own that's your own fault. <laughs> or it's up to right. or it's this issue of it's up to God, right? And that's something when you're talking about the government response or the, the failures of government response when a disaster is called natural or an act of God. In the case of coronavirus, that narrative is so dominant that it can be almost invisible. It seems, And it seems important to at least try to talk about the specific ways this situation that we are living in right now was man-made. Mm. So where would you start mm. that conversation? What are we choosing to ignore when we act as if a worldwide pandemic is natural? Mm. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking most broadly, right? And, and we, we might start with questions of how the global economy has created climate change. And, and one, of, one of the sort of nuggets of trivia that I found most interesting in doing the research was that you know, 31% of new viral outbreaks can be attributed to deforestation because they're pushing mm -hmm. disease-bearing species out of their natural habitats and into cities, right? And so they're introducing new viruses in into these urban areas, um, which allows, you know, the disease to spread at, at breakneck velocities. Along those same lines, right, I think we're ignoring the extent. I mean, and, and this was the thing too, is that, you know, one of the exercises in which I took part at Disaster City was this thing called the rubble entombment, where they buried me beneath quite a bit of concrete. And I, w I was in there for uh, four or five hours or something. And I, I came, you know, in, in trying to distract myself from arrhythmia and, you know, <laughs> um, troubles breathing, I, would, I was Googling a lot and, and came across this simulation of the COVID epidemic just a few weeks before this really broke. And they they anticipated to to sort of breathtaking degrees the very problems that that we're reckoning with right now, namely a shortage of ventilators, a shortage of ICU beds, communities that were disproportionately affected, namely the rural poor and urban poor, black and brown communities. Right, mm -hmm. these things were anticipated, and and interestingly, there was oh gosh, I can't remember where where I saw this, but one of the participants in that simulation toward the end of the exercise, and this was something that had been carried out by um, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and had members of China's CDC, Johnson & Johnson, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. One of the participants said, you know, we're going to go back to our governments and we're going to talk about this simulation, but then we're just going to get back to business as usual, right? Like right. the they they knew they knew very precisely that the the changes needed no matter how urgent or necessary it, it it would be difficult in the extreme to to suspect that that actual change would have been happened in advance right mm -hmm. which was just incredibly uh despair inducing and so i sometimes think about you know Baudrillard and and Zizek when thinking about these sort of cataclysmic moments and the extent to which they operate is what Baudrillard calls a capital E event, mm -hmm. something that sort of jars us out of our habitual modes of thinking and, and, and invites us to reconceptualize the, the manner by which we proceed at all levels of society. And 
you know, early on, I was I was <laughs> optimistic about that, but already we can see the ways in which you know our economic system is reabsorbing the disaster and kind of incorporating it into its procedures and. Amazon experiencing a 25% market share increase, right? Yeah. Like the, the extent to which meaningful structural change will result from this, I just, I just, I just don't know. I, but, you know, as, as, you know, I kind of allude to the, in the piece, I think I'm neurologically disposed, predisposed to sort of pessimistic viewpoint. Well, I mean, even the best simulation, would it know that, Around the start of June, when the weather starts getting nice, people just stop wearing their masks. Because I mean, it's over, right? right? I mean, you, you, there's certain, obviously, there's certain variables you absolutely can never plan for. And I'm not going to say that, you know, disaster city is not valuable. Like, clearly, there's, there's immense value in having people experience some form of what the people they will be treating at the worst point in their lives what what that experience is like like there's clearly value in that but then it's not this complete totalizing fix like there needs to be another right there needs to be a, another step yeah and and too I, I i i can't stress enough how just utterly impressive i found the task force members and how how you know, right-minded and right-hearted, they they struck me as the, these people are doing incredible work. And they they told me about going up to the the campfires in California and the things that they they did there were just uh, you know extreme acts of of heroism. And so there's there's that. And alongside of it, though, I kept thinking about how we think about these teams and these these FEMA teams in, in the sort of cultural imagination and how they function symbolically or what, what sort of narratives do they perpetuate, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I was sort of flashing on Susan Faludi's The Terror Dream in which she talks about how in the wake of 9-11, we began to recapitulate certain narratives about firefighters and, and police officers and, and these sorts of figures as sort of old West vigilantes who were going out and rescuing you know, the damsel in distress, really, mm-hmm. really problematic sort of like masculinist narratives, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which I think that that narrative is still functioning, right? And and it's being ap- applied to, you know, people who are disenfranchised, namely essential workers who work in gas stations and grocery stores, and we sort of lionize these people. But the the sort of corollary to that is that we're sending these people out to be essentially some uh, kind of martyrs for neoliberal capitalism, right? right. Like, yeah. they, they, they end up functioning as, as the ones who, who face the most ghastly after effects of bad risk-laden commercial decisions, right? Um, and, and so I think that there's whatever moral reckoning might result from, from the things that we're experiencing as a country, I think... I think it's useful to think about the ways in which the narratives that we're placing onto these people are actually obscuring whatever debts we may owe them to reimagine how we conduct business in this country. I don't know. That sounds very grand and lofty, gosh. But I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm just this you know scared person here in Wisconsin trying to make heads or tails of like how to think about these things. But after having like you know 
paged through so much research about this. And there's really, really remarkable books on these topics. Um, Scott Gabriel Knowles' The Disaster Experts is like this incredible resource in thinking through how disasters have been managed throughout history. You know, one of one of the interesting tidbits that emerged from that book was that sometime shortly after FEMA was created in uh, 1979, I think, much of the funding was appropriate and much of the government funding was appropriated to FEMA based on the preparedness for nuclear attacks. And, you know, there are all sorts of anecdotes about how in the 1980s, you know, there was a, I can't remember which hurricane it was, but it hit Charleston, South Carolina in 1986. And even five months after the hurricane, that community was still in trouble um, because FEMA just hadn't figured out how to deploy effectively because the the narrative about what preparedness was generally was all geared toward, you know, kind of Cold War era thinking rather than redirecting toward more likely disasters in the form of, you know, natural or, you know, hurricanes and stuff. I, I like hasten to correct myself in, in calling it a natural disaster, but mm. yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to, I mean, as someone who you say is sort of tilted toward the pessimistic, if we were to put it mildly, um, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's say, uh, this uses as many euphemisms as possible here. Sure. I mean, was was the fact that coronavirus happened the way you most feared? I don't want to say a relief, but was it like a confirmation on some level of how you feel? Or was it just or what, what, what was I guess? Yeah. What what has it been like? I, I mean, I'm thinking I'm thinking about how in February as what was then the epidemic was spreading through China and starting to trickle into other countries and how I was very dutifully using Clorox wipes on the whiteboard and the desk in the classrooms where I teach at the university. And these, my poor students were just looking at me with furrowed brows, just like, what, what is wrong with this person? And so I, of course, felt weirdly vindicated when these things sort of happen. But of course, it's no consolation. And what it is, is it ends up just being terribly tragic. I mean, there is something yeah. ironic about the entire world becoming obsessive compulsive. Um, you know, every, yes. everybody yes. washing their hands at the same frequency with which I do. And, you know, Jeff Dyer had a really funny thing in The New Yorker about like establishing at his house this little cordon cementaire where he's like disinfecting everything and going through these rituals of of cleansing and I had to kind of chuckle at that because these are these are things with which I was very familiar as a child you know someone who obsessively rinsed and repeated so yeah I mean there there there's some ironies that you know when you need some some relief from the horrors that we're experiencing, I can't help but notice. But it's again, it's no consolation. It's just kind of no. terrifying. But one rather hopes that that sort of pessimism ends up being productive, and that you know the things that I, I, it's it's troubling, right? Like the the way in which we're going about defrosting the quarantine and and seeing oh, seeing people, you know, reacquaint themselves with activities you know i live i live not far from a park where just yesterday people were 
playing soccer maskless and, and you know the, mm-hmm. the, the basketball courts were thronged with people and of course I too like love pick up basketball would love to go out there but it's so jarring to see this kind of staggered response between people and, and how they're conceptualizing it and it'll be interesting in a in a rather bleak way to see what the second wave looks like the velocity with which we've gone about returning to the normal operations of life or going through these phased reopenings, um, I think is glistening evidence of, of the ways in which we privilege certain narratives about what's important in this country and, you know, jumpstarting the economy and those sorts of things. And there are certain stark realities that that we do have to countenance about that, but but there's also a level of prudence which I think we're just kind of tossing out the the window. So because we're bored with it, I think so. I mean, for no other reason, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you know, well, no, I won't say that. Yeah, right. There's, right. there's like people who need who who work for small businesses right. whose bosses are bailing out themselves and they're just left with no health care, no nothing. And I mean, I, I, I do resent how, you know, sometimes the media will portray like people going out as like, oh, it's this weird death drive. And it's right. like, well, no, because they want to, they want, they can't live like this. Right. There's 40 million people unemployed, 30 to 40 million people unemployed right now. Like that's insane. It's insane. Yeah. And too, I mean, much has been made lately about what sorts of effects this is having on the sort of national psychology. What What is the mental health of, of our citizenry? And I, I particularly yeah. worry about this for my, for my students and, and some of my friends, right? Like you, you can kind of hear it in their voices or see it uh, in their faces and it, it'll be I, I've I've been tracking and paying pretty pretty diligent attention to suicide rates in this country and and what's how the pandemic is intersecting with that that problem itself and so yeah it's just I don't know I don't know well yeah it's it's too early to know yeah it's and yeah. it's even too early to know about what a second wave would look like and right. especially you know there's this huge back and forth about protests and then there's like an early study that was released that said oh actually people who go out to protest have a lower infection rate than right. the general population and it's like well you haven't finished testing the people in this study this is not a study this is just something you're saying to get like a headline like yeah. it's, it's this weird again the way science is reported in this country is has a huge problem sure in addition to the way that you know disasters are reported on as well sure but, yeah what a time um, i know <laughs> <laughs> yeah no yeah yeah well what's interesting no, to me it, is and i keep thinking about this is like how how quickly we're like historicizing this moment and thinking about like what this moment yeah. will mean uh, you know 20 40 years from now and it's a interesting paradox to me because i i have no sense of time right now i it, no. it it's so <laughs> variable and so to try to place this moment and, and sort of trace the contours of what it means just feels feels to me anyway like a fool's errand at, at least at this point i'm just trying to to figure out how best to be of service to the the things that that i'm seeing and that that itself is is fatiguing and so yeah 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 
I mean, I always probably, if your grandparents were around and they grew up in the Depression, you notice certain behaviors that they had, which were clearly derived from the, the Depression, right? Mm. So put water in the bottle, at the bottom of the bottle of like mustard, right? Yeah, or, right. you know, you, 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 you save everything, you save as much as you can, you save as much to the point that your house is completely full of things that are actually worthless, and right. maybe you're borderline a hoarder now. So that's right. sort of, so that's, so you wonder about that, you know, when we're talking about historicizing this moment, yeah. it's like, well, is, or even just the idea that people, so many people have had the experience of a loved one dying and they can't see them yeah like what does that do to somebody like we can't we can't say but at, at some point it it's going to before we can reckon with it it will be here so yeah entirely i keep i keep thinking about that as well like what i mean what they really are is compulsion what compulsions are gonna end up staying with us and it's funny as you were talking about the various before we started recording, you talked about the various stages that we're moving through in, in quarantine and, and dealing with the pandemic. And I I can go back and see my OCD flaring up to, um, you know, eye-popping levels early on where I was, you know, spraying my shoes with Lysol coming home, you know, like just, just totally mm-hmm. inefficacious practices. And you saw people wiping down their groceries and stuff. And, and I wonder, you know, for... For some folks, how long that's going to take to shake, or you know, there's there was a yeah. there was a great piece in the Point magazine out of Chicago, and and this writer was describing going for walks, and she she described it as like a video game where you get points for how many people you can successfully dodge, right? And that <laughs> that, that that feels like you know. I, I I wonder how how long it'll be before I feel comfortable just like walking down the street and like brushing shoulders with someone obviously you know like my participation in the protest i think has made that easier right you sort of got used to it again but there's there's all these things i just it'll it'll be interesting to see yeah if we're like you know the depression era folks who have rice from the reagan era still in our pantries (laughs) (laughs) hey that rice doesn't go bad keep it (laughs) don't throw that out right (laughs) (laughs) all right well uh, you know at least it's not all it's it's awful but there's little things you can take pleasure in yeah you can laugh but anyway thank you so much this was really wonderful oh thank you You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is Cut and Shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 